we are here in 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode four of Blockchain Insider. Today, we're breaking down the Ethereum parity hack, Bitcoin scaling, and later in the show, we talk to Richard Brown from R3. But for now, on with the news. Cool. So on the news, Colin, this week, we've only really got two major stories, but we have uh, an amazing guest joining us. We have Chris Boniski. Chris, thank you for being on the news with this week. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. And of course, the returning Colin Platt. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Glad to not be stuck on a plane this week. Uh, so there's some great stories to get through this week. And uh, the stories, I think there are so many more that every week there's there's 20 or 30 that we could easily cover. But the two biggest, without question, have to be the uh, the parity hack and, and Bitcoin scaling. So we're going to start with the parity hack. But Colin, I'm going to ask you to introduce this one because this, this could be the plot of a movie, this thing. Like, it's just incredible. Big, you know, big hacks. It almost feels like it should be the start of several different movies, or it may in fact be the start of several movies. It'd be like the Italian job of Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm. I guess this takes a, a couple of things to explain. So, first, um, high level, an ICO called Swarm City, as well as several other ICOs, including Eternity, that's A E T E R N I T Y, and Edgeless Casino, had approximately thirty-two million dollars at the time in Ether stolen from uh, their accounts. The reason this happened was through a particular client called Parity. And what we mean by that is in Ethereum, like in Bitcoin and everything else, there there are a set of softwares that live inside of servers or inside of your own computer that communicate with the network. Ethereum happens to have two main clients. Uh, the first is Geth, which is the original one released by the Ethereum Foundation or effectively the foundation that set up Ethereum. And the second is uh, from a company uh, and it's called Parity. Uh, This was released by another one of the original foundation coders. He set up his own company afterwards when he left the foundation after Ethereum was released uh, and built this this parity client. A lot of people have used it, but it isn't quite as large as the original Geth one. So I would use this parity client to hold my Ether, but I could also use it to hold any other type of uh, token within it. Exactly. So, And that would be, so when somebody calls you up and says, how do I get my hands on these crypto assets and cryptocurrencies? The answer to that question might be you use the Parity wallet. Yeah, you connect through the network to plug in through the Parity wallet or through the Geth wallet, the original one. So effectively in this, as we said, um, there are accounts in here and they happen to be multi-signature. And what that means is um, much like a countersign check, uh, you need more than one account to sign these things off. Um, So you imagine those little boxes where you can put multiple keys in and it's not just one key that opens it, you need two or three. What happened was there was a a bug in it. Um, So there was 2000 lines of code uh, updated in the Parity client. It is open source, we can track this back. And um, effectively that's when this bug was introduced that was exploited by a hacker. There were only five comments, so it wasn't necessarily best practice in how these things should be updated. And, and certainly in enterprise, uh, they would tend to check this a lot more. But open source is um, notoriously difficult to put governance structures around. It was interesting. I was talking to an industry expert um, not long ago who was saying that uh, you know if you work at a large company and you introduce 2,000 line of codes and uh, uh, you only had five comments from developers, that person would get fired. I, I would imagine they would. <laughs> uh, Chris, did you have a, a point about uh, this so far? I would say, you know, one thing that came to mind when this came out is it was particularly unfortunate because it was parody. 
and Parody has, I would say, um, you know, a, a pretty stellar reputation coming from Gavin Wood. I think, you know, in late 2016, when Ethereum was going over the different denial of service attacks, Parity was the only client that, you know, sort of kept on functioning smoothly. And so this is Parity hitting a bump in the road. It's, it's a bit of tarnish on their stellar reputation. But, you know, as we'll get into, I think the way that the community responded to this was even more important than the, the initial bug and hack. But there's more to this, isn't there, to get through, Colin? Because the plot thickens like any good movie. 20 minutes in, it turns out that there's a whole other thing happening. So the, who did the hack? There, there is a very long story. Um, one of the really cool things about blockchains is you can see everything that's happening. So you can see the entire history since um, Ethereum went public in, uh, what was this, in 2015. Famously, approximately a year ago, uh, there was the DAO hack. Um, so the DAO was... Um, a lot of different things for you and me, it looks a whole lot like a, a venture capital fund without a central venture capital investor. So anybody could buy these little tokens and they could vote on where we invest, where we don't invest. Um, and this thing was called the DAO or the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, it was launched in early 2016 uh, by a company called Slocket. Uh, it raised about $150 million at the time, which represented approximately 15% of all of the ether in circulation. So this was the first big token sale and somebody said I'm going to raise I'm going to create a venture capital fund without VCs and that's the kind of sentence that gets investors excited, right? But it went wrong. It it went slightly wrong. So um in June there there was a hack. Somebody found a way to go in and steal approximately 60 million, so a, a little bit more than a third of all the money that this account was holding. Um and split it off into this account that the people who normally should have access to it didn't have access okay, to. Okay, so but this hack in June of last year is not related to this new one. So so why are we mentioning this hack? Well, the reason we're mentioning this is the account that actually drained the DAO account is the same account that uh, exploited this uh, parody bug. So effectively, we think it's either the same uh, group or associated uh, hackers that have stolen money now, this $30 million, and stole $60 million then. Wow. There's one thing that makes it slightly more confusing. There's been a lot of discussion, kind of more um, from a facetious point of view, um, that when this hack happened last year, because 15% represented a massive stake in this market, Ethereum actually split into two. Ethereum, or ETH as we call it, and Ethereum Classic. So there was a contingent uh, that said, and led by the foundation, that said, this was, a, this was money that was stolen and we should return it to the rightful owners of this money. So Which what, you'd see in traditional financial services, right? You would expect there to be a governance and a framework. And when it's obvious that money has been stolen, there's, there's a boss figure to turn it around. But the whole point of blockchains that was there was supposed to be no boss figure. Well, A, there's supposed to be no boss figure. And B, you're not supposed to rewrite history. Um, so that's something that uh, a lot of people took issue with. Um, and so those people that took issue decided to ignore that with their own clients, we talked about earlier, and said, well, I'm not going to take this update that returns the money to the people who, from whom it was stolen. I'm going to keep it with the hacker. Um, maybe some of them were the hacker. Presumably the hacker was involved in that. Um, but the other ones went as well. And so we, we spoke with Meltem last week, and um, she'd mentioned Ethereum Classic. It's something they invested in. This is actually the other coin. Um, so she she mentioned part of the values are not rewriting history, not having a central figure. This is actually what she's talking about. So Ethereum is confusingly split into Ethereum uh, and Ethereum Classic, with Ethereum Classic 
not uh, not adhering to that update that uh, removed the money from the thumb. So that explains why when you go into exchanges, there's two types of Ethereum. You can buy Ethereum Classic and then ET so ETH and ETC to use the tickers. So if you're a retail investor, you're trying to go out and buy some Ethereum and you've got two different flavors to pick from, now you know why. Exactly. So that's that's a history. It's it's fascinating to read up more about and there's tons online. So I'd, I'd advise you if you're interested in either one, definitely do your research, uh, especially before you invest in either one. So uh, let's go down because it, it gets even more interesting. All right. So wait, there's a third plot twist. I can't deal with all these twists. So for, let, let's let's recap here. $30 million was stolen by the same people we think that stole $60 million last year. What happens next? Well, so there was another group called a White Hat group. Um, white Hat is uh, in the hacker community. Those, do they have white jackets? I hope so. <laughs> uh, those that are trying to do good. So they, they find holes in systems, but generally it's not to steal from you. It's to either acknowledge that there is a bug in the code that can be fixed or to, in this case, return money to the original investors. So they came in and uh, found another 377,000 F at that point, which was a considerable sum that could have been stolen by the same hacker. They stole it themselves. Um, and at first, everybody was worried that, well, maybe they aren't white hat hackers anymore. Maybe they are, in fact, the bad guys as well. They later issued a statement and came out and said, well, you can get your money back. But there was a lot of confusion around that because they said just because they were good last year doesn't mean they're still good. Fortunately, people are getting their money back now, as far as I'm aware. Um, so they were still, in fact, good. There's still people that are contributing to this, but that could have been very difficult. All right. So there's, there's this weird moment in which somebody goes, I'm a good guy. I'm going to steal your money from you so that the bad guy doesn't steal your money from you. It's a weird world we live in, huh? <laughs> It's uh, it's crowdsourcing coding mercenaries is 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 kind of how I think about it. And uh, when this news broke, a couple hours later, I was talking with one of the white hat hackers um, about the process and what was going on. And it was really interesting because he was reflecting on you know how everyone basically dropped what they were doing and came to the rescue of Parity right? Not even people who were working on the project. And we got into a conversation exactly as you guys were just alluding to, you know, what stops the white hackers from getting corrupted and saying, well, you know, I'll skim off a, a couple million here or there. Um, and his reflection on it was the community sees the opportunity behind Ethereum, right? And realizes that it's much greater than trying to pick off a few million here or there. And a lot of these white hat hackers have already made so much money. I mean, right, Ethereum went 40x in 150 days, and sure, it's had this correction now, but they've already made enough to the point where they're not so much driven by money, and maybe they were never driven by money to begin with. And then now, you know, they see the promise of the movement, and you layer on top of that the transparency of these permissionless blockchains, and they know that you know, if they were to try and get away with certain things, that could be traced back to them. Now, this all gets more murky with zero-knowledge proofs and all of that, but at least for now, um, I think it's fascinating that the system is you know, crowdsourcing these coding mercenaries in such a way. What I like about it is it says that larger communities seem to be basically good. It's, it's like a, a, I feel good about humanity when stuff like that, this happens. Like overall, the bad guys didn't win, even though there was full transparency on what could have happened. Whereas when a system's closed, like, I don't know, the rest of financial services, there's 
all kinds of stuff that can happen that we might never know about, and the regulators only catch a tiny bit of what's going on here. There's something, I think, ironic about the fact that because the the failures and the mistakes and the things that go wrong are so very public from the beginning, everybody looks at it as this bastion of like, oh god, it's falling over all the time, and it's really unsafe, and it's really insecure, and it's like, if you knew the amount of stuff going on in regular financial services that regulators know is going on, but know they can't do anything about, like, this transparency, I think, has a cost. And I think we need to reflect on um, whether or not the community coming around and dealing with that is a good thing or a bad thing. Because I, I actually think being able to have that transparency is a really interesting thing, one way or another. Absolutely. And I think uh, it's it's worthwhile noting in here, a lot of people have kind of taken this idea of, because everything is going to exist forever in a blockchain, uh, and we're all mere mortals, you kind of have the stewardship of the blockchain. If, if you do things that are bad, everybody's going to know about that and that will be immortalized inside of a blockchain. So uh, would you rather you leave a legacy that's positive or negative at this early stage? And a lot of people have gone in and said, I'm going to do that. Some people have decided not to. And, and generally, hopefully we're seeing less and less of that. There's something I like about the Ethereum community that wears its its flaws on its sleeve, um, the ugliness on its sleeve, but the beauty on its sleeve. Um, Chris, where do you see this going from here on? Do you see this being um, kind of you know, more trouble and more fragmentation, or, or do do is this a moment in which the community has started to rally round in a sign of maturity? I think this was a great moment actually for the for the Ethereum community. I mean, clearly the loss of thirty million dollars and the pain that that's going to induce on the Swarm team is not a good thing. But growing out of that, I think the community was catalyzed in a beneficial way to uh, rally around Ethereum, which is important. And then, you know, you look at the community beyond the developers and how the markets reacted, right? Ethereum knifed for a split second and then rebounded. And I think people recognized, you know, this was a bug in, in one of the clients not um, something mission critical within the consensus mechanisms. And so you have a more... I was just going to say, I, I think there's something really interesting. People recognize that, that are investors in Ethereum today. But I wonder how the optics play out. Um, I wonder how the optics play out to large organizations, to executives in larger organizations, to tech companies, to to people that we're going to build using Ethereum. Do they receive that message too? Because the traders that are in it, that have the knowledge, understand that, hey, this was just a client. It wasn't the core of the network. It's kind of like somebody hacking my phone versus hacking my bank. There's a big difference between those two. I'm a lot easier to hack than my bank is. Similarly, a wallet is a lot easier to hack than uh, the, the whole of the network, will that message get through to executives or will they understand that? Well, you know, if you think of the community sort of as peripheral um, circles of information, right? You've got the the developers on the inside and then the traders that are following every minute, right? Sort of in this in this next circle. Then you've got this broader sort of base that you're talking about of um, institutions that are kind of kind of looking um, testing the waters, not really sure if they want to dive in yet. I think that, you know, right now, um, Ethereum is pretty much exactly two years old in terms of the network running. Um, and so it still has this get out of jail free card, right? Um, in terms of it's a system that's two years old. Um, of course, it's going to have bugs. It's pretty complex. Um, and so for me, this is why I go to, you know, the idea that the early speculators are um, recognizing that this wasn't a mission-critical bug. And for me, that insinuates that at a later date, 
you know, the next wave of adoption will also become informed in the same way. So it's a speed bump. So I, th- I think just the, the last thing I'll throw out there is kind of an interesting thing to see is how fast this problem was solved. Um, I mean, we hear about banks going down and it ta- they sometimes have to shut things down because it's so uh, clunky and they're not sure how to fix it. And that's in a closed system. This is an open system that's running 24-7. And these guys fixed it in a couple of hours, a couple of days, um, depending on to what level of fix. I think that's amazing, uh, especially because people weren't getting paid to fix the problem. And it was running live and lots of money was on the line. And you've got to say that it, it is kind of the Wild West. They are flying by the seat of their pants a little bit, but amazing fixes happen as a result of that. And it's transparent because this kind of stuff goes on all the time again in big organizations it just seems to take longer because nobody can see it and nobody can find the documentation and well and what would you know what would the analogy of this look like in the traditional financial system something like you know jp morgan hacking back Citibank after Citibank went went dark and decided to steal funds from jp morgan's clients i mean for me when i think about how quickly as as you guys were just saying people rallied around this it is really the open source ethos, right? You code first, um, kind of ask questions later and get the job done. If this had to go through, you know, JP Morgan's committee, they would have, uh, the white hat hackers would have come back about four months later. Well, I don't um, think it would have got to their committee because the idea of ever working with a hacker, white hat or not, would have been terrifying because hackers are intrinsically bad to an executive because hacking can never be good, can it? There can be no ethical hacking. Oh, that's a crazy idea. And I think there's an education thing here. And I think there's a really interesting question for, you know, if I'm sitting in financial institution and or, or I'm sitting in any large organization looking at this, like, what should I learn what should i take away from this like is this mechanism really ready or am i just or should i be giving it more time and can can it ever cross over because it feels to me like it's happening in this galapagos of technology there's massive amounts of money involved but it still feels a bit distant from the rest of the financial services world and the rest of the tech world my opinion is i think i think we're going to have kind of a staged approach here we're going to see a lot of things uh, go down the route of permission blockchains dlt because it makes sense it's a slightly safer way to go because it's it's more closed. Ultimately, I think that there's there's a lot of life in that and that will exist for a long time, but we may see um, big companies get more involved and we're seeing this through um, things like the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, uh, where companies are saying, we like closed inter- uh, enterprise blockchains, but maybe at some point in the future, we want to future-proof and take other things in that involve tokens and coins like Ether and Bitcoin. So on the previous episode of the Blockchain Insider, Jeremy Miller talked about the difference between being behind the firewall and um, in the open internet. And, and actually, that as a metaphor is pretty interesting to me. You have the, the public internet that can do public things, and then there are certain things that you do on private lines behind a firewall. But the protocols that that runs on at an abstract level are pretty much the same. The way you design the networks and the topology underneath is very, very different, but the abstract is very similar. So so maybe we see convergence, but it wouldn't be Blockchain Insider if we didn't have another amazing movie-like story to bring you. Um, I think in a world in which BIP91 and SegWit are starting to happen, in a world in which uh, children and, and, and babies and life is on the line, uh, Bitcoin prices are still rising, but Bitcoin has a scaling problem. 
Colin, what is Bitcoin scaling about? All right. So um, I first want to preface this with I'm probably making mistakes, and this is a bit of a, a bridge version, um, but let's let's try to lay it out. So um, Bitcoin inherently has a limitation of the number of transactions that can take place at any given time. Um, right now, that's currently about seven transactions per second. Now, that's for the whole of Bitcoin. Um, so bear in mind, this is a network that currently is worth somewhere in the realm of $40 billion. So there's a lot of money in there. You can't move a lot of transactions. Let's compare this with Visa that moves something like 100,000 on a global network. So as you, you may have heard for the, our listeners that listened last week with our interview with Meltem, there's, there's kind of two camps that have looked at what Bitcoin is and projected their own view on it. And some of them said that they wanted a payments network, like a, like a Visa or a MasterCard. And some have said this is a store of value, something like gold. Now, um, it's, it's odd to think about this if you're not overly familiar with how a blockchain or, or money works, um, but that money would be either a payment system or a store of value was weird to me when I first got into it. Effectively, what these two different groups are saying, first, the payments, what they need is a high number of transactions, something 100,000 plus, and they want them to be cheap. So I can go out and I can hand you a five pound note or a $20 note, and you get that money without an additional cost. Well, so if I hand you yeah, a, a 20 pound note, I, it doesn't cost me anything to give you that money. It's cheap, it's free, and it, and it doesn't need anybody else to be in the middle of us. It's truly peer-to-peer. -peer, and actually, if you read the Satoshi white paper, it's actually titled peer-to-peer -peer digital cash, right? So that was, that was the stated aim. It is. And a lot of people have said, um, that's what it is. That's where it needs to go. And it always needs to be that way. Some other people have said, well, you know what this really is? It's a store of value. It competes with gold. Um, and so gold being a store of value where you can hold on to it, it's go only going to increase in value and it's better than sticking cash in the mattress because that's going to be worth something in 10 years. And like, like a house is a store of value in a certain way. It's an asset. It's an asset, not cash. And, and I guess that's very financial language, but that's a different vision. Like if I'm putting money somewhere for that money to grow, it's very different to having that money be really liquid and move really quickly. And you can imagine people that have a whole lot of Bitcoin probably have a financial benefit that the price of Bitcoin is worth a significant amount more in 10 years time than it is today. So holding Bitcoin makes me want other people to hold Bitcoin and for Bitcoin to be a store of value, unless I'm a true believer in the digital cash mission, in which case I might hold Bitcoin and its value would grow, but I might have different views. Is that... It, that, that's very true. And I think if you want it to be worth a lot of money, you need to move slowly. If it's moving quickly, it doesn't necessarily drive the value up. Mm -hmm. So I have a bunch of thoughts on this, and it's a debate that's been going on for years, and we're probably not going to resolve it now. But when we look at um, what a currency is, a currency is a means of exchange, a store of value, unit of account. And while there is clearly this schism in the community with some people leaning towards the means of exchange and some people leaning towards the store of value, I see you know, both being dependent on the other. And so the means of exchange is what um, originally provided um, Bitcoin utility. And people saying, okay, this is useful for transmitting value all around the world, and that is what very quickly brings in speculators that will hold this asset as a store of value. If you have a solely store of value-based um, group of users, then you know I think that actually Bitcoin's store of value characteristics will diminish over time. And that's not only because of the utility, it's also because of 
the security mechanism that underlies Bitcoin. So right now, um, basically Block Rewards, this new minting of Bitcoin, is a subsidy to bootstrap the capital base that supports Bitcoin. But over time, because Bitcoin is a disinflationary going on deflationary currency, those block rewards will diminish. And that means that transaction fees have to supplant the new minting of Bitcoin. And if there's not enough transactions or enough transaction volume, then actually the security model that underpins Bitcoin will erode. And if the security model erodes, then how can Bitcoin be a fantastic store of value or digital gold? So I really see these two as intimately entwined. Can I just jump in there? So that you said some really interesting things in there for our listeners. So unlike gold, um, Bitcoin actually, the more you use Bitcoin, the more Bitcoin's worth, the more secure Bitcoin is. I mean, gold doesn't work at all that way. The more we move gold back and forth, that doesn't make gold more secure. It doesn't make uh, gold in inherently a better money. It just moves quicker. That's weird. How does that work? In a way, yes. So just as we were talking about, you know, coding mercenaries for Ethereum, the miners that underlie Bitcoin are basically commute mercenaries and they are economically rational individuals. And so the more money they can make, um, the more they will pile in. And the ecosystem finds this natural economic equilibrium where, you know, miners, depending on what their margins are, will either, you know, add more compute power to the network or lay off of spending. And, um, you know, right now, they largely make their money off of newly minted Bitcoin. Um, and so that makes them uh, reliant on the price of Bitcoin. And so that's why when the price of Bitcoin goes up, more compute gets out of the network and Bitcoin gets more secure. But don't we find ourselves in a position where the transaction fees are already quite significant, even though we're effectively subsidizing the network by creating new Bitcoins all the time for the miners? Because if I compare a transaction fee in Bitcoin, there have been days where it costs a cup of coffee to buy a cup of coffee. And that would not work for a, a truly peer-to-peer -peer payment system. I would need something that is far, far cheaper uh, as a transactional system. I go back to giving you physical paper. Giving you physical paper costs me nothing, but giving you that as, as a Bitcoin would potentially cost me $5 or more. And if somebody's not printing new Bitcoins, then that that economic model doesn't make sense. But maybe it's just because it's still early, Chris. I, you know, is, is this something that's likely to change? Yes. So, you know, I see us really as being in this subsidy era. That's what this this inflation of, of Bitcoin is. And so over time, you know, I think that, um, and this is where I would fall in this camp that emphasizes the importance of means of exchange, Bitcoin has to hit either a big enough scale and volume of transactions that there can be, you know, these micro fees that um, will be scraped off of this high volume transaction load, and that will incentivize the miners to support the network, or you're going to have um, such massive, you know, important transactions that you don't need as many. And, you know, you can take, you know, a thousand dollar fee off of, I don't know, a million dollar transaction. And that won't necessarily be, you know, prohibitive depending on the programmable value nature of that transaction. So, um, you know, there are lots of ways this can play out. And I think that's why the community is so torn over it. I think, you know, there's another part to this where if you look at some of Bitcoin's roots, right, it was uh, largely born of anarchists. And I think that that's um, an important component of Bitcoin's history. And 
the priority there is unstoppable transactions and making sure that the network is always able to to process even for a smaller subset of society versus you know sort of this mainstream vision where you know bitcoin becomes i don't know visa or paypal 2.0 or whatever it may be and those in some ways you know people will prioritize this um narrow perfection versus you know some broad imperfection and i think that's some of the debate going on between core developers and miners beautifully summed up beautifully summed up so uh, colin throwing back to you sir then um i guess there's some key questions about what is the scaling debate i guess now we understand the two camps because there's some technical options depending on which direction uh we've laid out there there are so there, there's two, and we we talk about this um, called the the block size debate. And what that means is, so we have a blockchain. Uh, won't surprise you at all to to hear that. Given the name of the show, we talk a lot about those. Um, so Bitcoin has a blockchain. In fact, has the blockchain, the original one. Um, currently, if you want to download the entire blockchain, it is uh, about 125 gigs. So roughly speaking every every 10 minutes that grows by one one megabyte so every day that's about 144 megabytes that it grows so right now um, we're up to 125 gigabytes um, to put that in perspective your average dvd is probably about 10. Um, so it's quite a large file um, a lot of people have talked about ways that you can get more transactions in here um, and there's two ways effectively every 10 minutes we either accept more than one megabyte or we find a way to make the transactions themselves slightly smaller. Um, right now, it takes about 250 bytes um, to uh, form a simple transaction. Maybe there's a way that we can make it 125 or even less. Which would sound very familiar to people in financial services. Since the 70s, people have been trying to do do as much as possible with as tiny bits of data as possible. But with uh, ever faster, ever cheaper compute, we thought we'd gotten away from that. But now we see the, the most modern technology kind of uh, finding itself having these challenges. Interesting times. It is. And I, I think that... Um, when we really get into it, this brings, going back to our little camp discussion, a couple of different things. First, if I want to run a node, and a lot of people choose to run nodes, there's something like 10,000 of them going that we know of, and there's probably a lot more than that. Um, that, that costs money in dollars and, and, and pounds. And if the, the file size gets larger, much like with banks, it just costs more money to run it. Um, so that may reduce the number of people that are doing it, may lead to centralization, which may harm some of these um, ethos around um, decentralization and unstoppable money. And a lot of people have worried about this. So while I may be willing to not sacrifice the fact that my money won't get from point A to point B, I'll have to sacrifice by paying more in fees in order to keep this um, desirable that is decentralization. Now, not everybody is happy about that, which we've talked about. Um, so they've said, well, we're, we're willing to sacrifice on the decentralization aspect in order to keep fees cheap, in order to move that money back and forth. And really, I, you know, we can debate all day long which one's right and which one's wrong. But really, when it comes down to the technical debate, we have larger blocks and we have this new thing called segregated witness or segwit, which seeks to uh, limit the size of the transactions by removing some bits and pieces which we thought are less important to actually do the, the transaction and put them someplace else that's not in the blockchain. Now with that, obviously the people that are working on that optimization have said, we recognize there's a need to move more money than seven transactions per second or 14, if we can double it. And what they've come up with is a solution they call um, second layer scaling. And what this means is effectively, rather than putting every transaction into the blockchain, 
we move money in a second level that's denominated in Bitcoin. And, and the largest one is called Lightning Network, which is still coming about. And SegWit is one of the things that is necessary to build Lightning Networks. When people talk about Lightning Network, that sounds very confusing. But for those of you that have worked in payments before, I was talking to a good friend who's doing a project in Edinburgh at the moment on payments. And uh, the way I described it to her was, uh, think about it as uh, if Bitcoin is settlement, then uh, in card payments for many years, we've had a thing called authorization. So when you walk into a store and you use your credit or debit card, what you're actually doing is the merchant or the person in the store, their bank is asking your bank if you have enough money in your account and what they receive is an authorization saying yes there's enough money in your account so that's a very quick thing the money doesn't actually move for another two to three days for something else that we call settlement so authorization is very different to settlement so bitcoin people always said seven transactions per second was slow but actually seven transactions per second for a settlement network is really incredibly fast when you consider that for visa mastercard and amex that's two to three days on average whereas um authorizations to move that away from the settlement network or move it up to a second layer the the language is different but i think the concept is, is very very similar exactly and I, I think the way for non-financial people that i like to to try to explain this is very much when you're working on your computer in, in word documents you don't hit save every time you type in something in bitcoin you really do right now every time you do a transaction every time you type a key you hit save and what they're saying is, well, that's really inefficient. You're going to type for 10 minutes and you're going to save, or you're going to type for an hour and you're going to save. Um, and that's, that's effectively a good analogy for this second level where we're going to do something. We're going to agree back and forth. Simon, I hand you 10, you hand me two, I hand you five more. And then we're going to, every hour or so, or every day, we're going to say, okay, how much do we owe each other? And then we're going to go back to the network and say, well, I owe Simon seven. So this sounds a lot like what financial services already does. It does. <laughs> And, and a lot of people have brought up that irony that uh, effectively we've tried to build a network that uh, doesn't look anything like the banking system because we've seen issues with it. And then we've recreated netting effectively, which is what we call that, that action of doing a bunch of things and then coming up to what is the, the delta, the difference between where we started and where we are now, and then just recording that delta. There's a few concerns here, I think, that um, we should dig into in terms of segregated witness and second layer scaling, which to be clear, I am a fan of, but to better understand why, you know, some of the ecosystem and especially the miners have been opposed to some of these things. If you look at what second layer scaling does, it basically, we, we could stick with one megabyte um, blocks for the rest of Bitcoin basically, and keep building layers upon layers of functionality. But then the question then becomes, you know, who is getting paid um, for processing those transactions in the second layer or the third layer or the fourth layer? And I think long term, one of the concerns for the miners, and again, the miners um, are providing the base hardware, the base security layer of Bitcoin, is, well, if you know, there's all this value add being uh, performed on top of Bitcoin, and we're just sort of this base brute settlement layer, how much are we going to get paid? And, um, you know, I think that is something that we need to take seriously um, and not just sort of, um, you know, wave our hand out and say, we'll figure that out later. 
No, I think that's fair because the miners, again, to go back to the Visa MasterCard space, are like the payments processors. Like these are the people doing the hard grunt work of making sure that transactions are updated and added to the network and their revenue depends on that happening effectively and them having the ability to do that um, and, and to maintain a role in that. And so if you're saying, well, I'm going to take work away from you, but I'm going to expect you to do the same sort of thing and potentially going to take revenue away from you, you can see why they'd have an opinion on that and quite a serious opinion and and then they seem to have quite an important role when it comes to actually helping the community choose which of these options uh, actually gets installed, instantiated, begins. Would that be fair? That's very fair. And let, let's talk a bit about that. So mining is an activity that originally started with anybody that, that joins the network can become a miner. And what that means is we talked about block rewards. So every 10 minutes, um, Bitcoin goes through and it validates the transactions. And what that means is somebody is randomly selected from the miners through a, a algorithm called proof of work, and they update all the transactions and we download that copy, um, which is all of the new transactions, that process starts again. So that has become a specialized activity, largely led out of China um, by specialized miners who have specialized hardware to do that. And obviously they'd be very concerned that um, they've invested all this money, they pay for electricity to power these computers, and uh, they may make less money in the future. Um, so uh, there is the, the SegWit um, and these new upgrades that are coming to the network, which could challenge their revenue models. And so what they've done um, is they run clients. We talked about um, Geth and Parity earlier in the show. Uh, in Bitcoin, there's also multiple different clients. Um, the, the core is actually called Core, which is nice, um, set up by a group that's also called Bitcoin Core. Um, ironic, that one. And um, what they've done is they, they've created the original reference of Bitcoin. This was originally created by this um, shadowy figure uh, named Satoshi Nakamoto. And that basically describes all the rules of how Bitcoin works. We don't know if he was shadowy. We don't know if he was shadowy. We he was anonymous. Anonymous, there we go. They were anonymous. I'm sure they they had they, an interesting pronoun. He, she, uh. they, we're not sure. <laughs> um, so Satoshi was anonymous. We're not, we're not sure who they are, but they did create the software that started Bitcoin, and that's been maintained and upgraded and updated. And we'll talk a bit about updates inside of a network because that's quite important in this whole story. A lot of people have come together, and some of them led by these mining communities that are worried about their own revenue models in the future. And they've they've sponsored different um, technologies to come out, including clients called Bitcoin XT, uh, Bitcoin Classic, Unlimited, ABC, and numerous other ones that have come out, including um, from the the Parity Group as well, as they've come up with a, a competing reference in Bitcoin. All this is to to come in and say. Whenever we want to do a, an upgrade in, in Bitcoin, we need to have consensus or any other blockchain. We need to have consensus. What that means is for Bitcoin, practically speaking, 95% of the blocks that come out every 10 minutes need to be of a certain variety, a certain color. So when we want to do an update, that generally takes a long time. In this case for Bitcoin, we've been discussing this for uh, the better part of two years about making this update and even longer if we get into the abstract. So this is kind of different to what we were talking about earlier about parity, had a hack, they dealt with it in, in hours that were happening really, really quickly. Bitcoin, they've been arguing about this for two years. In fact, we had uh, Arthur and Kathleen Brightman on uh, a couple of episodes ago on episode one of Blockchain Insider, and they, they said the reason they founded Tezos was because they could see that it, Bitcoin had governance issues. Bitcoin was slow to make change. And some say that's a strength and some say that's a weakness. And this is exactly what they've been discussing. This is, this is kind of the 
the patient zero of where that issue has come in. And I think it's fascinating that people have tried to tackle that. And it, it's very will be a very interesting experiment to see if that actually works. So when people talk about the Bitcoin scaling debate, they often say that's the key thing that they're worrying about in terms of price. I mean, Chris, would you say that Bitcoin scaling debate is, is the thing that traders are talking about? And would you say it's something that um, the mainstream that have now been rushing at Bitcoin should be paying more attention to if they, if they hold a couple? It's definitely been um, a major factor within the price. I mean, when we look at what happened when uh, BIP91 got locked in, which is basically, you know, the the commitment to SegWit, Bitcoin popped more in that single 24-hour period than I think it had in 2017. I'm not sure about that, but it was up 20% in, in a 24-hour period, which you know, for Bitcoin a few years ago, that was run of the mill. But as Bitcoin has has become more liquid and more stable, a 20% pop in a 24-hour period is is a significant event. So, I think it's, it's something that people are definitely focused on. I think that, you know, another component of this is not just the revenue model, but also the power model. Um, and when we look at... Um, you know, Bitcoin is sort of this system of checks and balances that governs this economic system. You've got developers, miners, and users. And there's really been this battle between the three parties um, in this scaling debate. And you have the the miners in a way saying, well, we run the hardware, we're going to dictate which software we run. And then you have the developers saying, well, we're the ones who write the software, we know what's best for the network. And so there's been this... Um, fascinating code wars. And I think, you know, when you look at what may happen with SegWit, now SegWit 2x tries to avoid some of this, is you can see how if SegWit is implemented, all the scaling, as we were saying before, can go on on the secondary, tertiary, whatever layers above. And so, you know, um, in some ways, it will reduce the power that miners have. Right, because a lot of the software updates will happen above the core client. So I think that's, you know, another consideration. So I don't know how many considerations we have thus far in this debate, but clearly um, enough to make it um, an impasse. Which is why we only wanted two stories for the news this week, because I think actually these two are the stories, but actually they're very complex. Uh, I I think they're perfectly understandable. They're just detailed. And I think it's important if you are interested in this open source space, and if you do look at it as either just somebody who's enthusiastic or you're thinking, hang on, how's this blockchain stuff going to be the future of my business? It's worth understanding this stuff. Or if you're investing money in in Bitcoin at all, you should know a whole lot about these things because there are big risks on either side, uh, whether long or short, uh, whether you're buying or selling. Um, There's a few things I want to break down in what you were saying there, Chris. So you mentioned BIPs and BIP91 specifically. So a BIP first is a a Bitcoin improvement um, proposal. And so what this means is when we want to upgrade Bitcoin in any way, shape or form, there is a very formal process so that we don't have five comments in 2000 lines of code that don't get checked um, that Bitcoin has adopted. And this this basically instantiates that we need 95% approval before we make any small change. So... BIP91 is one of the specific ones that um, specifically sought to reduce um, the integration of SegWit, uh, reduce that from a 95% to a roughly 80% over a shorter time period. Um, Another thing that you hear a lot about is is something called UASF, or User Activated Soft Fork. I won't get into all the details of it, but effectively, nodes or people that keep entire copies of the Bitcoin blockchain, that 125 gigabytes I was talking about earlier, can either be miners 
or they might just be any interested individual who wants to support the network. So if you're familiar with a, a torrent, if you've downloaded any kind of content um, off of a torrent network that's a peer-to-peer -peer network, people can have either parts of data or entire files. And this is a way that you can effectively connect into them. So Bitcoin works very much in the same way. Um, there are people that say, I want to keep all of the Bitcoin records because I want to make sure that I support this network. And what they're saying is, on August 1st, which is coming up, maybe when you'll be listening to the show, several uh, groups of people have gotten together and said, well, if the miners are not going to upgrade and how they do it, we're only going to listen to the ones that have, and we're going to ignore the other ones. Effectively, this would split Bitcoin into two, potentially. Could you imagine if this happened in financial services? Like, if my bank doesn't upgrade its software with my app, I'm only going to listen to the banks that do upgrade their software. Like, this is an interesting world we find ourselves in where the, the, the users themselves have, the nodes themselves have some power. Yes. And, I mean, with Bit91 and what has happened, and the reason we have seen Bitcoin rally is that largely removes the risk of a hard fork, right? That removes the risk of a chain split. But one of the really interesting developments after we locked in for that um, has actually been Bitcoin Cash or the ticker BCC. And uh, that goes back to this idea of, um, you know, Increasing the block size significantly, making Bitcoin um, a first and foremost digital cash, and so it's being being pushed by the usual suspects, you know, Jihan Wu, and this is going to force a chain split, right? So I think that this coin BCC, the futures for it are trading at roughly five hundred dollars, um, so roughly um, one fifth of what Bitcoin's at. And so we're going to see what happens. And, you know, I'm a little surprised um, that this has happened. I think a lot of people in the community are surprised because in a way, Bitcoin finally came together and agreed around BIP91. And there was more overwhelming support for that than we've seen in a long time. And then, you know, there's this next twist. And I think for me, it's just an indicator that the twists and turns are never done. Um, or maybe maybe they'll be done in 10 years, but you know, you got to buckle your seatbelt and hang on for the next two, three, four, five years. So many movie references. Yeah, and I think I think this is a topic that we're going to definitely want to come back to on the show because although things are coming together with BIP91 now, there are still a couple of checkpoints that we may not cross the hurdle and there may still be um, less less than smooth implementations of SegWit and Bitcoin Cash itself. We, we want to watch this because we're definitely blockchain geeks, so it won't be the last time we talk about it. Well, no, and, and somebody was telling me that um, they envied me because they saw me as being knee-deep in a subject that was still super, super early. But the difference with this super, super early subject is there's a lot of money riding on it because people are trading and speculating on the outcomes of it in either direction. And that trading and speculation is intrinsic to the outcome in one way or another. People can not just vote with their feet, but they vote with their dollars, euros, yen, pounds, whatever it may be. And as a result, the evolutionary cycle and the development cycle has been a lot faster but it's still very much in a toddler phase where things are falling over all the time things are happening wrong but that's always been happening in the financial services industry that's always been the case that new transparency may be something that the millennials and especially gen z really expect and, and, and want to see from us uh, but that's all we've got time for this week as colin says we are going to come back to this i'm sure many many times um, but before we move on to our interview with richard brown uh chris where can people find out more about you and what you do the best place to find me is on twitter um my handle is at c Bernisky, so it's c b u r 
N-I-S-K-E, and I will be publishing a book on this space actually called Crypto Assets, um, The Innovative Investor's Guide to Bitcoin and Beyond. And that can be found at the website bitcoinandbeyond.com. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed following your Twitter account, and I would highly recommend people follow at Cibaniski. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for being on the show. And coming up next, we have the one and only Richard Brown, the CTO of R3. Thank you very much, everyone. So we are back recording slightly later because normally we record at the beginning of the week, and there was a pretty big news article about the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. coming out with the report on investigation pursuant to Section 21A of the Security Exchange Act of 1934, the Dow. Sounds very ominous. Uh, we spoke about the Dow earlier uh, in the show. We brought back Jeff Bandman, who joined us last week, former CFTC and now of Bandman Advisors. Uh, Jeff, what can you tell us about this? Uh, yeah, thanks, Con. Thanks for you very much for having me on today. So this this is a uh, a major uh, a major occurrence. This is the the first time that the SEC has spoken formally uh, about these uh, initial coin offerings or about tokens, and they've made it very clear that their view is that these tokens can be securities. And in the case of the tokens issued by the Dow, that these in fact are securities. Now the way they've gone about it is interesting. Uh, looking at this from an American perspective, it's, uh, I would call it a kind of digital Marbury versus Madison. Marbury versus Madison, for those who are not familiar with it, was an early landmark U.S. Supreme Court case in the early days of our republic. And what it did, it simultaneously established and asserted the Supreme Court's authority to speak about something, in this case, its authority to overturn acts of Congress, at the same time, because of the unique facts before it, it declined to act on the authority it had asserted. Similarly, here, the SEC has asserted that these Dow tokens were securities. At the same time, they've determined not to get into a fight or pursue an enforcement action at this time, though they've clearly reserved the right to do so in the future. They've said it's just based on the conduct and activities known to the commission at this time. So they really have put the market and the world on notice that in their view, the tests that they've applied do mean that tokens can be securities, and they've applied that test to the tokens issued by the Dow and determined that those were indeed securities. Thanks very much for that. And can I just bring up two really interesting points you, you brought up in there? Um, the first is you said uh, tokens can be securities. Does that mean that all tokens are securities? Definitely not. Um, what they've indicated is that it's a facts and circumstances uh, determination. There's a test that's referred to as the Howey test that relates to a, a court case uh, that's about 70 years old, but it, it stood the test of time, which has made it clear that the uh, methodology that the uh, regulator uses is they look beyond sort of the, the, the form and the formalities to the substance, the economic substance and characteristics, and then they apply the test. And in, the, uh, in this report of investigation, they walk through the steps. They explain how each of the four elements of the test apply specifically to the tokens uh, issued by the DAO, and then they apply them to these. And so what one can infer from that is that if you had another type of token, you would have to apply this test and look at whether these facts and circumstances rose up to these four key characteristics and if it falls within that definition, then you're looking at something that is a security. But if it doesn't, then what you have may very well not be a security. 
But I think they've, they've also uh, really put, put the market in the U.S. and around the world on notice that you really need to do your homework about this. And they've made clear their view that uh, these specific tokens were securities. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, another question I thought was really interesting. You pointed out that they had not taken action. Do you think we can anticipate uh, the SEC and other regulators around the world, uh, the FCA in the UK, MAS in Singapore, amongst others, kind of getting together and forming a joint action based off of what we know today? Um, you know, it's it's hard hard to predict that that kind of thing. Um, you know, while there are kind of arrangements in place that enable uh, regulators to act jointly, it's certainly easier for them to act uh, individually. You know, as, as a regulator, you have specific authority over the things that your statute or set of laws and rules put in front of you that defines the things that you have the ability to speak about and take action about. So, you know, I would, I would imagine that regulators are in dialogue about this, but I think that it's more likely that they would act or take steps individually than to do things uh, jointly, particularly at this time when this is still uh, a nascent developing uh, area. That makes a lot of sense. So then I guess kind of one concluding question here. Um, last week you spoke about regulations and clarity. Do we at least know what a security is in relation to DLT, whether DLTs are um, a place where securities can be placed? And is this something that will help us in the future attract um, more established institutional capital, or is this still too early to tell? So I, I think that this is a positive development in terms of legal clarity and legal certainty. And I do think that uh, in, investors, um, you know, serious investors that often have, um, you know, kind of legal or other organizational institutional restrictions, uh, you know, really like to have legal certainty for, for what they're doing. But, uh, you know, I would like to observe, you know, the SEC was very clear about a number of things, uh, that these Dow tokens were securities, that this was a securities offering to U.S. persons, that the Dow itself was an issuer. Uh, they also uh, indicated that the, uh, the trading system met the definition of an exchange, so it would need to register as an exchange. Or they also set, uh, and I thought it was a very interesting roadmap, they really highlighted, if you read all the way to page 17, that uh, an alternative to registering as an exchange is to register as an alternative trading system uh, or an ATS. And so, uh, you know, I think what they've done is they've uh, provided a lot of legal certainty in an area that's been murky. I think many commentators had expected the SEC to take this view. It doesn't mean that they've put a stop to all tokens. I think they've you know, drawn a line here to make people aware that uh, these things can be securities. And there's a joint statement uh, that accompanied this report from the Division of Corporate Finance and the Division of Enforcement, really uh, urging people to, to pay attention and understand what the rules are. Um, there's one other kind of interesting thing that I would, I would note, actually, too, just to wrap up on my end. You know, the first, there, there's a footnote, uh, 38, that raises the question of whether the, the persons uh, associated with the Dow or the Dow itself were an investment advisor. They didn't actually reach that specifically because they felt the Dow never completed the offering. The other thing uh, I think people should think about is if these are securities, this, this uh, investigation, uh, report of investigation focused on the issuance. But if these things are securities, then if I'm holding them now, the resale of these tokens is a resale of a security. And there are all sorts of rules 
around treatment of resales of securities in the secondary market for people who aid and abet that in the secondary market without complying with the necessary registrations or, or exemptions. So I think there are a lot of things here that folks need to uh, pay attention to. All excellent points. Thank you very much for that. And I really appreciate you coming back on to talk about that. Um, always good to hear that from people that know what they're talking about rather than us just speculating on Twitter. So thank you very much for coming on again, Jeff, uh, especially on short notice. Everybody else, if you've enjoyed this, we expect to talk a lot more about regulations in the future. And we hope Jeff will come back to join us. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me again today, Colin. I look forward to the next time. We are back and joining us, we have the CTO of the venerable R3, Mr. Richard Brown. How are you, sir? I'm really good. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. You're welcome, sir. Good to have you here. And of course, Colin Platt is still here. Hello again. Hello again. So Richard, kick us off. What is R3? So R3 is a software company, but we first came to prominence um, back in 2015 as a consortium of most of the world's largest banks. So we were founded to explore the potential of um, blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology, if you like. And we were based effectively on the, on the insight that if this is going to have an impact in regulated financial services um, as a separate as a separate thing to, to the Bitcoin and Ethereum revolution, it's going to happen between multiple firms at once. This is all about shared technology, distributed technology. So it made no sense each firm doing their own POCs, their own projects. It made sense to come together as a consortium to figure it out together. So that's where we began. Um, and then to bring you fully up to speed, you know, after um, 18 months of work, um, we identified what we think the opportunities are, what the potential is. And one of the key things we've um, we've, we've done, we've delivered, um, we've open sourced is in beta, we'll be at 1.0 in a few months is our quarter platform, which is um, one of the key, key things we built as part of this process. So what I find interesting is the idea that um, regulated financial financial institutions is the term you used and regulated means there are a set of rules and regulations that they have to follow and that they can't switch off because a new technology got invented so they they have these rules that they have to um, fit within was that part of the insight behind some of the design choices for Corda and one what is Corda? Good question so Probably the best way to think about it is, is is to go back to the you made you made a really good point probably about half an hour ago in the news you you talked about Bitcoin and you referred back to the original Bitcoin white paper um, and um, I think it's the first two lines of the abstract um, Satoshi Nak- Satoshi Nakamoto talks about this this system of purely digital purely peer to peer digital cash um, and and if you think through the implications of that that means okay so this is cash so it's a bearer asset it can be given to anybody anybody can anybody can receive it but it's purely peer to peer, it's purely digital. So that implies censorship resistance, it implies it can't be confiscated. This kind of is almost the antithesis of the regulated financial infrastructure, financial institutions. So how on earth, why on earth would banks be interested in this? And of course the answer is you know, that that particular uh, that particular innovation, amazing as it is, is not actually what I think most financial institutions um, are, are, are adopting this technology for. Because like, as part of the, the, the R3 work and others, not, not exclusively us, as we looked at it, and, um, and I don't claim any particular Particular insight into this. This, this was not. This was not only us. There's a realization as you look at the technology that underneath the architecture that allowed Bitcoin and Ethereum and these other public platforms to work was actually a new way of building systems, um, trusted systems that exist between untrusted parties that work on the basis that the same information. If, if, if the same, if, if you and I share some information, if you I and Colin share some information, this platform allows us to be sure that what I see is what you see, that we all have the same information, and um, and absent having a, a trusted third party or 
relying on us all to um, subscribe to some very strict rules. There was no other way of building systems that allowed us to be sure we were in sync with each other until we were kind of shown how to do it by these technologies. And you made a very interesting point there about trusted third parties. Why can't banks just trust a third party? They can, um, and they do all the time. So banks trust each other. They trust central parties, central counterparties, um, um, you know, clearinghouses, um, central securities depositories. And where they already exist, they make a lot of sense, and there's, um, there's, there's no real point to try and disintermediate them or replace them. But there's a huge number of places where banks act bilaterally or multilaterally where there doesn't exist a central infrastructure, and whether there's either, there's either structural or regulatory reasons why it's not possible to implement one, or it would just be fiendishly expensive or complex. And in those situations, what we find has happened again and again is that each bank builds its own systems, different teams. They think the thing they're building is in some way different or a bit special, but ultimately a core. Um, we look, we see time and again, um, teams in every bank around the world have all built pretty much the same systems to do the same things, to manage their deals and records and trades and balances between each other. And then they spend even more time and cost trying to make sure they all are in sync and they reconcile with each other. The promise of this technology is you can upgrade, you can augment that in a way that means they're guaranteed to be in sync without having to have all this unnecessary duplication. It's like if we all decided to build our own kit cars to dissolve every different problem um, in different directions rather than buying them off the shelf every single time. And, and the repetition of that kind of creates difficulty because we all do it in a slightly different ways and then we have to sync up all of our idiosyncratic, slightly different systems with each other because I need to know that if I've sent you a load of transactions and you've sent me a load of transactions, that at the end of it, the regulator and everybody else thinks that we've at least figured out between ourselves what's actually happened. Yeah, it, it, it was, there was a blog I put out a few um, a few weeks ago um, because I'd, I'd kind of assumed that this sort of blockchain, this distributed ledger revolution, this enterprise blockchain thing as distinct from the public blockchains, I'd kind of assumed that that was well understood and people, people, if not understood, kind of agreed there were there were two separate revolutions, two separate um, things happening. And it was only when one of our developer relations team, um, so the team that helps people understand what Corda is and, and how it works, went out to the West Coast to, um, to run some training. It was only when um, he went out there that I realized actually that we'd not done as good a job as we could have done of of, of explaining how we think there are two separate things going on. And this idea of taking the insights from these public blockchains and applying them to the problem that sounds mundane, but is actually huge, this problem of ensuring that disparate systems actually are in sync when they need to be across firms, um, making that that revolution is actually separate and, 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 and massively important and valuable. I don't think, I don't think we've done enough to get that word out and, and help people realize that we're not in competition with each other. These are just two separate revolutions happening at the same time. And and can I just point out really quick, your blog is amazing. And anybody that's interested in learning more about blockchains, Bitcoin, anything like that, Gendal, G-E-N-D-A-L dot me is fantastic. Read it from beginning to end several times. I have. I, I have called it the Bible before, not to fangirl over you too much, Richard, but it, it is kind of amazing. And, and while we're on that, you wrote another blog post that I really liked. Um, you talked about channels. So first, before we get into that, is Corda a blockchain? So um, on the blog post I just mentioned, I um, at the very end, for those who scroll to the end, I, um, I, I said, you know what, I've tried to retain this engineering purity because I've not explained what Corda is and I'll do that in a moment. But technically at the core of Corda, it has um, huge similarities to a lot of the other blockchain and distributed ledger platforms um, out there. But one thing it doesn't do is batch transactions into blocks and confirm them every so often. It confirms transactions in real time. As we were, as we were designing this thing and as we um, figured 
figured out what it needed to look like to solve problems in finance, um, we didn't encounter a need to, to to wait until lots of time had passed and then gather everything together and um, and, and confirm them like every 12 seconds, every 10 minutes, or whatever it might be. We confirm as soon as the transaction is 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 um, is finalised. So technically, um, it's not a chain of blocks; it's a chain of lots of chains of transactions. But you know what? Um, given how um, how this space has um, has evolved and grown, and um, how many um, different technologies are, um, are are being developed to solve different problems, you know, we're firmly part of this community and trying to separate it. It, it offends my engineering sensibilities, but um, but to all intents and purposes, given how broad the techni- the, the the term has got, you know, is a blockchain um, in the um, in the, in the broader sense. Yeah. So this is um, something where I, I've often said to people that people are using the same word for car as they are for vehicle. Um, like if, if I said, can a vehicle fly or can a vehicle go on water and can a vehicle uh, drive across land? The answer is yes. If I said, can a car do it in the blockchain sense, I'd be right to all of those as well. And, and I think this is the kind of the problem is that people are using that term kind of loosely. But actually, if it means something to certain people, then who are we to argue? Uh, exactly. And um, and. It, it's 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 the name of this space. It's the, it's the name of your podcast, and um, and we're fam- we're family part of this community. It's a popular hashtag. So, um, you guys have entered beta with Corda. W- what does that mean? So, so when we started on our journey with the um, with the R three consortium um, back in 2015, one of the um, first pieces of work we did, and this was led by my team. I led um, something. I lead something called the Architecture Working Group. It was to figure out you know, what is distinct, what is new or innovative about this blockchain technology. And the answer that I gave earlier is the answer. It's about bringing parties who don't fully trust each other into consensus about some facts in Bitcoin. How many Bitcoins are there? Who owns them? In Ethereum, you know, what's the state of this shared computer that anyone can anyone can look at? And, and that, that's what's new. But you look in finance and you say, well, you say, what's the problem we're trying to solve there? Where do we have people who should be in consensus about shared facts but might not be? And of course, it's whenever you and I have entered into a deal or a group of us have entered into some sort of syndicated loan or, or a trade finance deal. It's wherever multiple people should have the same trade, the same the same balance, the, 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 same, um, the same, same deal, but it's recorded in different places and it's not guaranteed to be the same. And so we set ourselves a challenge of building a platform that could fix that problem, could assure us that when I've got a a vision of a deal in front of me, I know for sure that what I see is the same as you. So Corda is a platform for managing agreements, not just financial agreements. It turns it turns out that the design we came up with is far more broadly applicable. It can be used in insurance, other parts of financial services, but also um, outside financial services, healthcare and, and other um, supply chain um, examples being um, front of mind. But but Corda at core is a platform for managing agreements, making sure that we're in sync and then we remain in sync as they evolve over time. When you say managing agreements, what do you mean by managing agreements? Like, like, like a contract. Yeah. So you and I have entered into a... Um, so I'll give a financial example because that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, I've agreed to um, enter into a, um, a loan. So I've lent you some money, you borrowed the money, so we need to record the fact that agreement exists. How much have you borrowed? When is it due, when is it due to be paid back by? Um, how regularly will you pay interest? What's the interest rate? Um, so we agree on that but now we need to manage it over time we need to make sure that when a payment is due we both agree it's due when a payment is made we need to agree it's been made and there's a default we need to agree what will happen how we'll resolve that dispute and it sounds so it sounds so trivial because you think well you know surely this is a solved problem but whenever that same information needs to be recorded by two or more firms who are not the same firm they actually exist separately um, that is so hard to do absent this technology for somebody that's ever worked in a bank it would seem like a huge problem for somebody that 
that's been working in tech for 10 years, you'd think this had been solved 20 years ago. And I, I guess this is the problem that you talked about with lots of organizations all having different systems that all work slightly differently, but basically do the same thing. Can I jump in there, though? There's something really interesting you've said that we haven't really hit directly. In a public blockchain or cryptocurrency system, there is an asset, and we agree on who has those assets, and in Ethereum and some of the other systems, we agree about who might owe the other one that asset. Is there a coin or an asset that lives inherently inside Corda? Uh, no, um, by design. I mean, when we spent all this time developing it and um, working on it with, um, you know, with our membership, the point that kept being made again and again was, you know, banks' assets, banks' liabilities, um, the things they get involved in. They're denominated in pounds, euros, dollars. Um, so that's what that's what you can um, model ownership of or obligations of in um, in Corda. And it's back to my point earlier that you know, Corda doesn't seek to be a competitor to Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's trying to solve a different problem, the same problem that other, other enterprise blockchains are trying to solve um, and you, you, asked, you asked about beta so we've been working on this for um, for um, I guess over 18 months now we open sourced it so this is a fully open source platform which you don't necessarily expect from from an organization that that's, that was um, that, that, that is owned by a whole um, collection of banks you know, we have 44 banks as our 44 financial firms as our investors but we open sourced that last year um, and now as the platform matures it entered beta a few months ago and we'll be hitting 1.0 at the end of September. And, and just on that, open source, is that something that's new in enterprises and banks? Is that something that they're familiar with? I don't think it is. So, um, you know, if you go to, in fact, I think you would struggle to find a single bank that doesn't rely almost fundamentally on open source software. And they've been consumers of open source historically rather than producers. There's there's an element of producing here, maybe, or is this... Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, this 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 platform, this this Corda software, that, as I say, is 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 applicable to, to multiple industries. But it is the it is a child of the of the financial services industry. It came from this really intense period of of collaboration, almost unprecedented collaboration from at its peak over eighty financial services firms, and I think over three hundred senior technologists were working on our architecture working group um, um, at the same time to to figure out what this thing needed to be. So it's a, quite a, quite a part from the the open source aspect that level of collaboration and um, and um, and to be frank innovation some of the ideas that went into the core of quarter I think that is is truly unprecedented we were clear from the start and, and the members that our investors were the same technology such as this that will be deployed at scale by so many firms and by so many firms at once inherently have network effects and inherently require multiple firms to move at once and so the idea that this base layer would be proprietary and controlled by a single firm um, one I think that would that would inhibit adoption but also it it, it, it something that fundamental needs to have as many eyes as possible on it, reviewing it, contributing to it, and ensuring that it's um, that it's of as higher quality and as secure as possible. So speaking of having many eyes on it, you've announced some pretty interesting partnerships. So it's not just banks you've been working with. You spoke about a partnership with Intel last week. So um, I want to do the bit do do sound like what's going on with Intel? We're doing something really interesting with a piece of technology from Intel called SGX, which stands for Software God Extensions. And, and this takes a few seconds to um, to explain because it's quite counterintuitive technology, but it, it's mind-blowing when you get your head around how it works. So to, I guess, to set this up, you've got to think about what problem are we trying to solve with, with DLT or with, with blockchain? So this is not just another distributed database. You know, if, if we were trying to solve a problem of keeping regular databases in sync, that technology already exists. The problem we're trying to solve is keeping databases or other things in sync between firms who don't trust each other. So I can't just send you a message and say, hey, I own a million dollars, now it's yours. 
why would you believe me? You need, you, you need to trust but verify. You need to ask me to provide proof. So if I say, here's a million dollars and I'm giving it to you, I have to provide proof that that was mine to start with, that I got it from somebody who owned it, and that we can trace it all the way back to the issuer. So, so fundamentally, in all of these distributed ledger technologies, you've got this trade-off between um, integrity of the system so that you can, you, you can know for sure that what you see is true and you're not trusting somebody else. You have that trade-off with privacy because if I show you where I got that cash from, well, haven't I just told you how much money I earn? Haven't I just told you where I got it from? So in platforms like Corda, we think about this really deeply. We make sure that the only information we send you is the absolute bare minimum to know where that cash came from and to allow you to check that it really was issued correctly. We anonymize the addresses, we apply all kinds of techniques to, 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 to reveal as little as possible, but just enough for you to, um, to, to know that that payment was correct and that you now own that money um, beyond doubt. But it still felt like we could go further. Um, and ultimately, outside advanced technologies, there's, there's no more than you can do. Corda is the, the, almost the, the exemplar of the, the, the best privacy solution you can possibly get with regular technology. But there are two things you can do that go a bit further. One is you can say, actually, I'm not going to send you the information at all. I'm simply going to convince you that I possess that information. And that, that leads to technologies such as zero-knowledge proofs and things that you've talked about elsewhere and you'll talk about in other podcasts. And Cord is ready for that when they become mainstream and become sufficiently performant. And that idea is, I've got the proof that I own the money and I'm going to convince you beyond doubt that I really do, but I'll show you nothing. But for the general purpose solutions we're trying to deliver on Corda, we have to be able to allow um, arbitrarily complex computation as fast as we possibly can, as zero-knowledge proofs are not quite ready for for that at, at scale. But there's something else I can do, and this is where it gets quite, quite, quite mind-blowing or quite mind-bending. What I want to be able to do is send you that proof so that your computer can check that money really is yours. But I want your computer to check it but I don't want your computer to show you the information because I don't trust you to look at it. So this is really weird because I know you trust your computer because it's yours. That's the thing that's processing all your transactions for you. I want to convince your computer that this 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 money really has changed hands, but I don't want the computer to reveal it to you. So it's how do you do that? And that's what Software God Extensions, that's what SGX allows me to do. I can send this data to your computer encrypted in a way that only your Intel chip can read. The software we provide can can process it, can check that the chain of um, provenance, that the, um, the, the integrity is correct. And then your computer, which you trust, can say to you, yes, it's legit. Richard really has sent you that money. So to use this software, this um, magical um, encryption that are now inside the Intel chips, do I need to be a member of R3? Do I need to be uh, working with R3? And how, how do I get involved with it? So I guess there's two things there. So um, so Corda is is um, is open source. Um, you don't need to be a member of R3 to, to participate. Corda.net is how you can download it. We have a thriving um, community at um, slack.corda.net. Jump in. The whole dev team is there. We do all our thinking in public. That's where you can see what we're up to. The code itself, Corda, is um, is written for the Java platform. We actually have a Java virtual machine running, and we've proven we can get a Java virtual machine running in SGX. So you can write this code um, in, in, in languages that people understand. You know, there's, I think there's between 7 and 9 million developers who understand this. So no, you don't need to be an R3 member to participate in the Corda community. So what I find interesting is there's probably 35,000 Ethereum developers out there. There's, there's, there's lots of people interested in this community. Um, but I've not seen financial services organizations or people close to it before going here's where our code is here's how you get involved in the community so so that's pretty big but um, just before we wrap this one up um, there's been a major news story we talked about this week there was 
the parity hack. How would you contrast that position that the open source community finds itself in versus, say, where, where Corda is? Well, first, Corda is open source as well. So we are firmly part of the um, open source community. So every single piece of code that's ever gone into Corda, you can see in our GitHub repo, github.com slash Corda. You can see our code. You can see our pull requests. You can see our, um, our code reviews. And I guess the key point is when you see something like this happen, you're always thinking, you know, there by the grace of God, you know, you know there's no software is perfect. There can always be problems. But something that we take, take really seriously because we know we're building security software. We're building fiduciary code. We don't want any code going into the platform that hasn't been hasn't been rigorously reviewed. So I'm sure there are cases where we don't get it right, but um, but I see this all the time. You know, with the um, the standups um, each day we run and the code reviews. You know, large large pull requests. We're constantly telling our developers, you know, don't submit large pull requests. Please do break them down because it's just so hard for any human, no matter how how clever or skilled or experienced, to be able to review so much code in one piece. So it was a timely reminder for us all. And this is this is not in any way trying to um, trying to sound in any way superior. You know, we have. You know, no firm has, has has the right to do that to any other. Um, it's simply just a timely reminder to us all. You know, we just as an industry just have to get so much more rigorous on code review and um, and, and quality control. And can I just ask you a, a last question? I know a lot of our listeners happen to work at banks. Some of them may be members of R3. Um, how can we find out more if we're a developer or if we're not a developer at one of those banks or outside of those banks? So R3.com is our homepage. Um, Corda is at Corda.net. And like I say, you know, the community is, is welcoming, thriving, and, um, and all the devs are doing their thinking and design all in public at slack.corda.net. So what I found with R3 is that often uh, the further you are from it, the less you understand it. So get nice and close and figure it out. There's there's code repos there to be taken advantage of. Richard Brown, thank you very much for being with us on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. And thank you to listening to another episode of Blockchain Insider. What I would love to convince you to do is to leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends about Blockchain Insider. We'll have more shows from you coming soon. And check out 11fs.com if you want to know more about the team who bring you Blockchain Insider every week.